The Recovery Room is a podcast for the readers and listeners of Get the Girls Out, a memoir of love, loss and letting loose. You know that feeling when you've just finished reading a book and you loved it so much and you almost grieve the ending and you feel like you need a debrief? Well, The Recovery Room is the perfect podcast for you. I'm the youngest of four kids and the next brother up from me is my brother Peter and his amazing story as life as a missionary living in Madagascar is a really big juicy part of the optimism chapter and get the girls out. My brother Pete is a little bit loony and I think uh, this is sometimes mistaken for optimism. (laughs) The good news is he has three sons and they are just like him. Pete was the first person to read the whole of Get the Girls Out. I fed him one chapter a day until he was done. And then he said, shit, Luce, I think I better lay my hands on you and pray. So here's my big brother, Peter, King Optimist. How awesome is your wife? Honestly, I can't believe there is a chick on earth so perfect for you, Pete. So tell us all about how you two met. Okay, I met Cara at a dinner party of an ex-girlfriend and um, I then started chasing her. It was a few months later once I ditched the ex-girlfriend at a Batman party where I was dressed up as Robin wearing flared tights with underpants on the outside. (laughs) Cara was just running from me. She didn't want anything to do with me. But she she dropped the, uh, the hint that, she was actually going to be doing a course at the Bible college I was at. And so I knew I had all the time in the world. I could just, you know, take it easy and just win her over in time. So that's how we met and that's how it flourished from there on. <laughs> Slow and steady with yeah. a bad start. <laughs> uh, there's a bit more to that story, I thought. Didn't you actually, weren't you on the hunt for a missionary's wife? You wanted to be a missionary, you needed a wife. Didn't that all begin in Bangladesh? Uh, yeah, it definitely was. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I did that short-term mission to Bangladesh where I was testing tube wells for arsenic. Because they get um, from the Himalayas, a rock called pyrite erodes from, from the, the rocks. And then basically that settles in Bangladesh when they use a tube well, a pump uh, groundwater for drinking, it releases um, arsenic and so people get skin cancer anyway so from I just had a real desire to do mission work and so yeah definitely was on the lookout for a girl who would be willing to live in a mud hut was a, <laughs> a prerequisite so I definitely put Cara through a few little testers to make sure she was the right girl and she passed <laughs> with flying powers uh, when I proposed she- to her I said to her would you marry me and live in a mud hut? <laughs> and she obviously said yes, but what was her initial reaction to the mud hut offer? Uh, she was keen. She was. She she actually thought that because she, she comes from a mission family and they lived in. She grew up was born in PNG or grew up there. Yeah. Um, and so she always thought she would go back to do that kind of thing. So we were made for each other. You were absolutely made for each other. I always say Peter's the dreamer and Cara's the doer. 
So you'll think of something wild and crazy to do and Cara will be the one who goes, I wonder if we'll need a visa for that. <laughs> so, yeah, you're a very good match. So tell me the, the big fast forward then. What took you to Madagascar? What made you choose that country of all places? Because before you went, I couldn't point to it on a map. It was just a, it was a really great cartoon that my kids loved. Um, but I didn't know where it was in the world, what it needed. What made you choose Madagascar? Yeah, so initially we liked the name. <laughs> we liked the name Madagascar. And, and so then the more we researched it and looked into the place, we went, wow, this is really for us. This, you know, it's surrounded by ocean, um, just the biodiversity, the animals, just the environmental impact. Uh, and what the people were like um, yeah that's what then we were like yep this is where we've got to go let's go check it out and Cara's quite so your qualification was that as, as an environmental scientist Cara as a nutritionist and teacher yes yeah right perfect combo so when Pete when you were getting ready um, to go on your big adventure I still remember this because I, I had one or two little kids two little kids um, you know, baby and a toddler, you had the same baby and a toddler, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And kids were little and you were getting to getting ready to go on this mad adventure to the place that none of us knew what it would hold for you. And the whole family was telling you that you were mad, that you were nuts, that you were giving away life and education for your kids and health and safety and all these safe things. How did you stay focused on what you wanted to achieve with such an optimistic output out view outlook sorry um how did you stay focused on that when all the party poopers me included were telling you that you were nuts yeah we shouldn't go yeah yeah like you know mum would say don't whatever you do don't drink the water just like good one mum <laughs> um, i guess the thing that made it concrete for us was we first did a recce trip and we went to Madagascar for a month with Luke. So Luke was only 10 months old. Um, and we, we just saw the great need in Madagascar and where we could help uh, with youth ministry. And, and we just felt it was a really good fit for us. And, and, and we just saw the real need was there. And so it gave us the vision. And we, and we just felt like that God was really on it. We just saw doors opening. Now that initial trip, we were able to go there within three months. Um, yeah, everything just sort of fell into place. And then the, the best surf in the world just happened to be there or was that one of the things that fell into place as well that made you go, yep, this is it? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I discovered that down the track, how good the waves were. Right. That was a bonus. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't get to see the waves the first time. We did get to the coast, but I didn't get to see waves. So the first it, time you ever went there, you went to Antananarivo, the capital? Yeah. So we and what did... What did you see there? What did, what, how did it present to you? Because I've been to Madagascar now and it's very different to mainland Africa, certainly southern and eastern mainland Africa. Um, what did you see when you got to Tanna? Uh, yeah, so we, we kind of hung out with, uh, there was a British guy who'd been a missionary his whole life and he was a little bit crazy too. So he was the right guy to be with. Um, <laughs> and so he sort of egged us on like, yeah, you can do this and this and so as far as being there, it wasn't too bad because I think 
I've been in Bangladesh and if you've been in Bangladesh, you can go anywhere because Bangladesh is just a mouth dropper. You know, the extreme poverty and the, ex the extremeness of just complete chaos. People going everywhere. Uh, make, made Madagascar seem easier to, uh, to transition. Yeah, okay. So Bangladesh was a good baptism of fire. Yeah, for me it was. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, India was like, India and Ethiopia were like that for me. I think if you can travel to India and Ethiopia, I think those two prepared me for, um, for visiting you in, Ma in Madagascar because it's, that's, that's the most raw, degrading poverty I've actually seen with my own eyes was in Antananarivo in Madagascar. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So again, yeah, it's poor and but we had a great time, a good trip, but we did get really sick. So we did come back from that recce with our sails deflated almost, you know, we'd lost that puff in our sails. And so it, it was funny how it, it just came back. We just knew it's where we had to go. Yeah. yeah what kind of sick did you get? Oh, uh, we got these nasty colds. And I just remember, um, uh, was Luke just sitting in bed? The poor little thing just looked so painful. He was coughing, and we all felt terrible. And uh, we were knocked out for a week. So the month we were there, we spent a week just feeling absolutely awful. Hmm. Um, so we came back a bit deflated, but it just—I don't know—that passion in us just grew and grew and grew. So it didn't matter what anyone said, we were going. So I guess it was focus. Your optimis your optimism was just really pinpoint focused because yeah. we tried very hard to talk you out of going the whole family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so explain to listeners um, how the missionary field works in the way you did it. So as sort of self-funded missionaries, how, do, how does that whole scene work? How did you make a decade in a country like Madagascar? work for you as a family yeah so like uh, raising funds that yeah. yeah 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 it was pretty incredible when you think about it we had to raise seventy thousand dollars a year and so over 10 years that was seven hundred thousand bucks and we totally were funded the whole way which was incredible you know just people who from our local churches just different people supported us got on board um and it was interesting before we went, I was just sitting in, like that was a worrying thing. I was just sitting in my lounge in Newport and it was a bit of a God moment where I, it was raining outside, but the sun was shining and the droplets were just really, really golden. And it was just, I just got this, I don't know if I heard God or it was an impression I got, but I just felt like he was just saying, I will just, I'm just going to shower you with blessings and you will have enough. And uh, that just happened. It was amazing. You know, there were times we were short and, you know, the, the mission, most people get sent home if you haven't raised enough money or you can't go. And, and the mission that we went with, they were like, oh, if anyone will do it, the chaffers will. And, you know, the money would just come through. It was amazing. Well, you worked your tail off. Both of you worked your tails off. So you had lots of churches contributing, lots of individuals, uh, a couple of companies yeah. um, that, that funded that work that you were doing and then give me a description. So what was the actual work that you were doing? I know Cara did lots of English teaching. Uh, what was the actual work you were doing? Missionary yeah, so work. Basically the thing we noticed was that 
there were youth groups in Australia. There was a lot, uh, sorry, in Madagascar, lots and lots of youth, but there was not real a youth group. And so they would like, they would sweep the church or they would do lots of singing, which is great, but they didn't really understand or know the Bible very well. And so we did a program which was called Bible Storing. So basically it takes them through from the beginning of the Bible, which is Genesis, and through telling, and so you translate the Bible into stories for them and going from Genesis all the way through uh, to the New Testament and parts of the New Testament, New Testament, we would tell them the story in their dialect and then ask them questions about the story. So what did they like? Uh, what do they yeah, learn right. God? What do they learn about people? And then we wouldn't tell them what to do. We'd ask them, what does the Bible what, what does the story tell you to do? What do you want to do if this, you know, from this story? And it was fascinating because once we got the Malagasy language, we were able to see life through their lenses. We, we got to see how they saw God and how they, their worldview impacted how they interacted, you know, with the spiritual world and with God and, and the decisions yeah, wow. made. And, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, but lots of the Bible stories are set around fishermen and um, pretty like subsistence farming and um, and shepherds and stuff, and that was that's kind of how the Malagasy were living in the area that you were living in. Yeah, definitely. So those stories so really, could, really applicable. Exactly, they could relate to them. It, it, it made sense. Yeah, cool. Um, and it was just fascinating just to watch them on the journey and be taken with them, and also through that, our language just really improved when we did that. My Malagasy yeah, well, took off. I could really communicate a hundred times better. I was so impressed with you and Cara with your Malagasy because you studied your buns off for a couple of years and didn't get very far. And then you just um, switched into the storytelling and being in the village. And it was so impressive. So I hope you never lose those. I don't know another language. I'm a monolingual lady. This is all <laughs> I got. I got about three words in Ethiopian and that's about it. Um, so, Pete, I'm just going to put you on the spot. I want, I want you to give us the sound of the Malagasy language. So just tell us a really a, a few sentences, a brief um, sample of what Malagasy sounds like. Okay. Salama nama namana. Manokuri iha. Zao sua. Manokuri yanao. Yanao namaku tenasua bibiki. Ari zao tia yanao mare. Keep going. Yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> or tell us what, tell me what that means. I said, uh, you're my friend and I really like you and I like really spending time with you and being with you. <laughs> Is that a, was that a handy phrase to have too? Yeah, you're always friendly when you meet people and that was good. Yeah. I remember when I visited you, seeing you chat with various people. I, a lot of the time I didn't know who they were but chatting with various people and how easily you made them laugh and your voice is super animated. Um, and I always remember something that our mum has always said, which is if you can joke in a language, you've nailed it. And there you were, you were the comedian of the village um, in their language. It was so impressive, Pete. Yeah, we, I, <laughs> we used to have fun just laughing with them. And, and it's crazy, you know, I did this language aptitude test before I left. Uh, oh, before, uh, when was it? Before Bangladesh. And oh, I yeah. failed. 
<laughs> you will not learn a language. Yeah, Petey, I'm not surprised. When we were, at, at, for the listener's benefit, when uh, Peter's two years older than me, and when we moved from South Africa to England and then to here, just the way it worked, Pete had to repeat a year. Um, and and I still remember, Pete, when you finished your degree, one of your first jobs was with uh, an environmental government department and you were proofreading the endangered species legislation and you mm-hmm. thought you spelt endangered, I-N-D-A-N-G-E-R, because the animals were in danger. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, stop paying Peter to proofread the legislation. (laughs) But then fast forward to Madagascar, as soon as you took the academics out of it and uh, there's a fair bit of, I think, photographic memory that goes with um, learning a language as an adult, you put the sound into it and the feel and you just just conquered it. So you were fluent in this language for so many years. It's... um, Amazing, amazing for people to hear that if that they've been told they can't learn a language. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it was all about spending time with people and just doing something that you like. Like once I started going fishing with them and doing, you know, the story, those Bible stories, um, it just it just clicked, just started yeah. to work. And um, So they would teach my, you the, the nouns, the, the words for all the fishing equipment and the water and the sea and then it all sort of started to fall into place. Is that how that worked? Yeah, exactly. Um, and also turning off, I was a visual learner. In the beginning, I would see writing in the sky. I could see the words written in the air. And I started off being better at writing, kind of like Ashley, because I was, you know, always learning by writing. But once I turned off my visual learning and then enhanced my audible learning, I was learning words I didn't even realise I was learning them. Wow. And I wouldn't know how to write them, but I knew how to say them. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, Pete, you had some pretty epic times in Meta, amazing times. And I'm sorry it took me eight years of you living there before I got there myself to see it and feel it and smell it and taste it and such a wild place. But tell me, pick one or two of the absolute best, best times you had there as a family or, or as just as you or you and Cara. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that and... um. Actually, it's probably better to start with the worst times first. Okay. <laughs> Give me your worst time. The worst possible time. <laughs> because I think always moving to a place like that in the beginning, that's when it just... Yeah, okay. Good. Yeah, gotcha. And, you know, we started off with kids. All the kids got sick in the beginning, like Luke and Jojo in the beginning. They, they got dysentery, so that was pretty tough. But after we'd been there for... We've done our two years of language learning. We moved to Tulia, which is on the southwest coast. And um, on the way driving there, I was driving in the car. The car actually flew down because she had viral pneumonia and she was pregnant with Micah. Oh, man. At the time. And so she flew with her mum and Micah because, you know, they were worried. She was bedridden. Uh, So I bought this little bomb of a car and I had that loaded up. And I was driving uh, to the south, to uh, Tulia, the southwest coast. And um, it was, I'm trying to think, it was, it was something like a 20-hour drive, which, uh, which we're going to do. Uh, and how old were the boys? They were tots. Yeah, they were tiny. So oh. uh, my kid <laughs> wasn't born. Uh, <laughs> so Jojo would have been two. Yeah, Jojo and, would have been And two. Luke, four. Yep. <laughs> 
Oh, I can't imagine how tough that would have been. But, you know, I compare it to a Facebook post that I would see where, you know, I'm flying to Fiji with my two and my four-year-old. What snacks should I pack? <laughs> Compared to your 20-hour drive in a shitbox car down the coast of Matter. Far yeah, out. yeah. Well, the boys actually flew. So I drew a drive with a couple of Malagasy. Oh, I we see. Were convoying with the removalist truck. I see. Okay, yeah, that's slightly less hideous. <laughs> yeah, it was still, but you know, Cara's bedridden. Her mum's trying to help her. She's got to get on the plane with the kids. Oh. Try to get to Tulia. Um, I'm driving this little car, and the timing belt chain jumped a notch, so the car just died. This white smoke was flying out the back of it. And we had just overtaken the removalist truck, and so uh, we managed to flag him down. And so he ties this rope on the back of the truck and we're like, he can drag us all the way for, you know, the next, oh, far out, 18 hours or whatever it was. So you, and, could just, um, you didn't have to steer then? You could just... No, I had to steer, but, it, you know, the car was just in neutral. Oh, wow. Anyway, this truck driver kept forgetting we were, you know, it was a bit like the gods must be crazy. He kept forgetting we were behind him. <laughs> and so he, every time the police stopped, he'd just take off. And the rope would snap. And so oh. we'd tie it on again. And then the rope would just get shorter and shorter until he's driving like, and he hits this pothole. And they hate driving through potholes fast. So he just slams on the brakes. And I've got no brakes. The <laughs> car just goes right up the back of him. Smashes the windscreen. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? It was like something no. was physically had its hand on my head and was trying to stop us. So anyway, we keep going. And then we get to this part where the rope snaps and he's got the radio blaring in this truck. And I thought, he's not coming back. I just see him driving over these hills, these up <laughs> down the hills like this into the distance. And I'm just stuck on the side of the road, just shaking my head. And I was just like, he's not going to come back. I'm stuck. Anyway, finally we got there. We made it to Tulia. And um, <clears throat> so through that time, then there was an Aussie guy who was helping me and he was in the front of the truck that time when they drove off over the hill and we went to put, uh, we had hot water solar panels to put on the roof to heat our water. We we're putting those up on the roof and um, I went, um, I went, all right, let's go down the bottom. Let's get the next one. And I just completely blacked out on the roof and I flew off the roof and landed like three meters away from the roof. Um, just on the ground unconscious and it was really weird because the roof had a gutter so I should have just rolled into the gutter because I you know I just fainted I just saw I remember a blackness coming over me but I'd landed three meters away from the roof uh, on the ground and I hadn't hurt my head or anything but I'd fractured my L3 vertebrae in my back and it was just really strange we were like for me, it felt like something hit me and something caught me when I flew off the roof. And um, yeah, so those times were really, really difficult. I was, you know, had this broken wow. back. Cara was in bed. She just looked like death warmed up. And so we were told, look, you better come back to Australia. And we brought our homestay back early. So we locked up all our house. We went back to Australia and she had mica, which was a miracle. And then we also went to visit a pastor who actually 
he prayed for my back. And my back was quite funny. After he prayed for me, uh, the lower end of my back was really wet with sweat. And I was really hot. You know, I get completely healed by this pastor praying for me. And now I've got a back that is better than before I fell off the roof. You know, I used to get a sore back surfing or rumbling the kids. And I have just this 18-year-old back. It's quite amazing. <laughs> Far out. Yeah. And what about the best times, Pete? Yeah, so some of the best times, you know, I think we used to go, um, I used to go fishing with the boys and the, the fishermen, and we would get a torch, uh, like a dollar torch, and we'd put five condoms on the torch to waterproof it. And then we'd go at night time and we'd go fishing for lobster. And so you'd be in the boat sort of 10 o'clock at night, um, in the water, you know, it's warm water, but there you are snorkeling around rocks looking for lobsters. And um, Actually, the, are... the torch story, I remember you asking once if we could buy you these solar-powered waterproof oh. torches. This was years ago when you were there, and I remember we bought them, and then I remember you... <laughs> I remember you saying, oh, good, we won't need condoms anymore. And me not knowing what that really meant. <laughs> Going, right, okie dokie then. <laughs> anyway, yeah, fishing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, and the, they loved those torches. I gave those torches to the fishing guys. They used to use them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just, and then I couldn't last all night. They would go from like 10 o'clock till night till five in the morning. The plate would be full of lobster and they loved it you know they were making two months worth of wages in one night when we when we just get it on the right night when all the lobster were there um and then i i'd be too tired so i'd crawl on the boat and i had this little trimaran boat that i used to take them with me with and uh, i just fall asleep in my sleeping bag with you know the stars these guys with torches going on underneath the boat and then we'd, we'd come back to shore. We'd have coffee in this little grass hut where this old lady was making us coffee with the little donut balls. And uh, it was just amazing, just amazing times of connecting with them and just living life with them and fishing like that and then driving the boat home. And we'd all be asleep. Even I'm driving it, you know, little, had a five horsepower. And even I would be asleep. And you wake up 20 minutes later and you're like, oh, that's no, still ages to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so right. coming back exhausted and then cooking lobster and just, uh, and just amazing time, amazing time with them. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so, but also I think the other amazing times were um, just seeing the miracles happening there. Like there were times where we learnt to, um, we pray for people in comas and we saw people coming out of comas and we just saw because in Madagascar when things go wrong they really go wrong yeah and often it's it's like Africa when stuff goes wrong it's so it goes wrong so badly and and but they Pete, Pete, tell us some of the like like the I remember Cara telling me about how you if you go and see a doctor, they will give you the most ludicrous advice that they're not actually trained. They don't actually know what you need to take for that ailment and that they'll give you advice that will kill you. Um, so when things go wrong, there, there actually isn't someone properly trained usually to help steer it right. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, in Madagascar, you go to hospital to die. The doctor will most likely kill you. Um, they'll give you exactly that. They'll give you calcium injections. They think calcium injections will make you better. And here, you know, I had a friend, he, I went to visit him. He's sick as a dog. His ankles are all swollen up. He sold all of his furniture to pay for the medicine. And I was just like, what? Let's go see your doctor. Let's see what he's giving you. So I go with him. And here he is. I say, show me what medicine you're giving him. And he's got all this ridiculous medicine. Here this guy is. He's sleeping on the dirt. He mm. sold everything, you know, to pay for the medicine. And um, I remember that was a time where I was like, you just had to be pray with desperation because I was like, what else can I do? Now I took him to a doctor and, a, and, a, and another doctor who got him on, on, you know, better medicines and stuff like that. Do you remember what was wrong with him? What was his actual ailment? It seemed like he had kidney stones and I think he might have reacted to the medicine he was being given. Right. Um, anyway, so I, I remember getting on my hands and knees and actually praying for him for his feet. Because I was like, there's only so much I can do. I can, there's only so much I can help. I can't trace this guy to the doctor every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, well. and I've only got so much money and there's only, you know, there's a lot of sick Malagasy. Not that I helped all of them, but um, yeah. and I remember just being on my hands and knees and praying, God, please heal him. Please make him better. I came back. It was about a day and a half. He's totally fine. <laughs> totally better. And yeah, so well. We just had amazing, we saw God just do amazing miracles like that. Um, and obviously one of the other great perks of Madagascar was it on the Thulia, which where we happened to be, it just had perfect waves with nobody out. Yeah, amazing and, surf. Yeah, and so perfect that there was actually a wave I found and it's called Pete's. I was the <laughs> first to find it. And just, I just, it was the first, it was the only wave you could sort of really get to uh but i had a big quad bike or a motorbike and um you could drive there and i'd take the dog and she'd look after the motorbike and then i'd go off for a surf and just surfing these perfect waves by myself it was just yeah, incredible amazing and no sharks yeah no sharks because the locals have eaten them all it's absolutely fantastic <laughs> all the sharks are like 20 kilometers out to see where they should be um and they just knew not to come in. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Never saw a shark the whole time. You know, surfing in the rainy season, it was like chocolate water. That's a dangerous time to be surfing. I saw one little reef tip shark once, and that was it. And I was on the beach, and I just saw him shoot through a wave. But, yeah, no sharks. It was amazing. Mm. So, Pete, why did, you, why did you come back to Australia? Why did you end that amazing adventure, 10 years of adventure? Yeah, so... It was a couple of things. The, the, the big one was our kids needed to come back and do high school. So we, rather than send them to boarding school. Um, so now we think maybe it would have been better <laughs> to boarding school. Actually, <laughs> that reminds me of a question. Let's just back up a little bit. There's a story I want you to tell me because you've never told me this until very recently. Can you tell me the story about the poo in the bucket school? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> So when Luke was tiny, you know, we sent him off to a Malagasy school. So, yeah, they went to French school there. But in the beginning, when they were tiny, we sent them to a Malagasy school. And they used to have all these buckets out the front of the classroom. 
and the kids would poo, pee and poo in them. Oh. And so we call it poo in the bucket school. And so um, we had this beautiful dog in Madagascar and we, we wanted to bring her home to Australia. And it looked like I'd worked out a way to smuggle the dog off Madagascar <laughs> to South Africa because you can't send a dog from Madagascar to Australia because of quarantine. They don't trust it. Yeah, right. And, and with rabies and stuff. And so I was like, <laughs> all right, boys, it's going to cost us a fortune. I thought it was about 5,000 bucks. It looks like it would have been a lot more. And so they'd been going to a private French school. We had six months left of school and the schooling was our most, our biggest expense. And so I said to them, boys, I think it's time what do you reckon you go to poo in the bucket school so we can get Bella back to Australia? <laughs> so your boys could speak fluent French. They went to a French private school, or, you know, private in the scheme of things. And, and, they, and, and the option was either leave your dog at home and keep going to this school or we move to the poo in the bucket school, save the money and use it to smuggle our dog into Australia. Yeah. That was it. And, uh, they were keen. They were dead set. You know, of course they, they were. <laughs> they loved that dog. You know, they come home from school. It was just stacks on the poor dog. And she was amazing. And, so what um, happened? Well, they couldn't, we couldn't find someone to look after in South Africa. We, we had a boat that was going to sail her over. <laughs> but we couldn't find someone who would be able to go, yep, we'll look after her. We'll get her the injections and all that. And then you can fly it. We'll fly it to Australia. And so I had to tell the boys, we can't do it. I'm so sorry. And I'll never forget the time we were in church back in Australia and Jojo wrote this letter to Bella, how he was so sorry that we left her behind Aww. and how he wished we did it, but we just couldn't. We tried everything. You know, we went to put in the bucket school <laughs> and, and, you know, the boys, they used to say they couldn't go to the toilet at school. It was so disgusting because... Then it was just this hole in the ground, which basically was just poo everywhere. Gross. This was high school at this stage, not just little buckets outside. How park. many kids went to that school? Oh, there were thousands. Oh. It, it was horrendous. Oh. Man, they must have loved that dog. Yeah, but I will never forget us just all bawling our, our allies out over that letter and just being so sad that, you know, we couldn't bring Bella back. Mm. Yeah. So you gave her away, you gave her to another family or something? In- yeah, we did. There was a British guy who had a hotel and, and he loved us. So she, uh, yeah. she was well looked after. So she was good. So then you came back to Australia so that the boys could go to high school and now they're in year nine and seven. Yeah. And um, and so what was that adjustment like? Um, I've only had this on a smaller scale. I would go to Ethiopia for three weeks at a time. And I used to find just after three weeks of being there or somewhere like Cambodia, I used to find coming home to Sydney a tough adjustment. So it must have been a huge, huge adjustment for you as a family. Yeah, it was. It was totally crazy. You know, I felt like a, a stranger in a strange land. Because when we left Australia, Australia changed over those 10 years. Oh, yeah. How did it change? Yeah. Australia, you know, we used to be able to laugh at ourselves. And I found that when we came back, Australians had take, took themselves just too seriously. Everything was trying to be politically correct. Meanwhile, that's not what they thought. You know, people say to be politically correct, they're not telling the truth. 
and so it was really yeah it was really difficult there was there were so many rules so in Madagascar there were no rules mm. came back to Australia you know became the nanny state you know New South Wales it's called the nanny state with so many rules and regulations and it just yeah the contrast where Aussies used to laugh at themselves and you know things were a bit more humorous but now they just took themselves so seriously so it was a real real adjustment that that six months and I really got thrown in the deep end um you know when we came back and I was working with the church as a youth minister and just to be balancing that, you know, in Madagascar, totally different. The fishing culture was just in your face. You know, the guys I would hang out with, they would say, you're a picture of madness. Ihasari <laughs> gegi. Which was a really rude thing to say, but it was okay. Everyone told me I'm a picture of madness. And <laughs> well, they've got a point. <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe they're telling the truth, but. You know, I had one experience at the end of our last week. We were staying at a friend's house. It was a, he lived in a really expensive place. They had a compound and they had a gate and a guard on the gate. And I had this engine hoist I'd borrowed because our car was always breaking down and, you know, putting the engine on the kitchen table to fix it. It's a car's delight. And um, anyway, someone had stole the engine hoist. So I went to visit him and I asked him, you know, uh, where, where's... What's going on? You pay this guard, you know, the most expensive place in Zulia, and my engine hoist is stolen. What are you going to do about it? And there was this young guy there. He had a, like a cowboy hat and shorts and sunnies. And he goes, Zulia is a safe place. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a safe place. And I said to him, you're a picture of madness and your head's in the sand. If you <laughs> This is obviously <laughs> in English or in Malagasy? In Malagasy, I said, Ihasari gegi, tilua nawa nao nati nifask. <laughs> and um, sounds so uh, offensive it was very rude <laughs> and what was worse was he was the mayor of Tulia I didn't know it <laughs> and so next thing you, and he's like what did you just say I said you're a picture of man your head's in the sand you asked me about it 10 times and everyone else is like what I just kicked into you know I was theirs which was the fisherman culture and he was a different right. culture they weren't quite used to that sort of Especially being official, you should be a lot more polite. And I didn't know he was the mayor. I just thought he was a young bloke. So is that like me shouting at Clover Moore, telling her to go fuck off? Pretty much. <laughs> oh, Pete. Okay, and then yeah. what happened? So then he telephones the cops and I get dragged off to the cop station. I'm put in a cop car with two cops either side of me. And I get there and all the police, they know me. You know, I'm the missionary in town and they're like, Peter, what are you doing here? You know, I often used to go and see them when my house was broken into or <laughs> whatever. And and I said, oh, you know, the, the mayor tried to tell me that Tulio was safe. It's a safe place and, you know, it's not dangerous. And I told him he was a picture of madness and his head was in the <laughs> like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have done that. But they, you know, they knew I was right. I was telling the truth. And uh, the crazy thing was after that, he had been trying to stop. Uh, what the police do sometimes is they rent their guns out to the bandits so they can go <laughs> rob people and they can make a bit of money on the side. And he was trying to stop that. And the tribe called the Tandrui, they pull the little rickshaws. They were the ones who were doing it. And he was going to deliver his kids at school. And they attacked him. It was 10 o'clock in the morning with machetes. 
and attacked him and his brother and he ended up with his head split open and flown wow. to the capital city. And then a few, uh, you know, a week later, the port, like, so he had a terrible experience with that. And a week later, one of the policemen said to me, you know, pulled me over because they always check you and, and that's how they know me. They pull you over and ask, they want money off you. And, and he said, you know, remember that time in the police station or what you, you told them there, he was a picture of madness and his head was in the sand. You know, we haven't finished that. And so he was trying to get some money out of me. And I said, well, you know, I'm a missionary and if you treat missionaries like that and you saw what happened to the mayor, you know, we wouldn't want something like that to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, you better get going. <laughs> <laughs> the fear of God. Yeah. So it was pretty... So, I mean, I came from that to Australia and it was yeah. just like, oh my goodness, I've got to do things totally different and learn to walk on eggshells. And yeah, it, it was a big adjustment. Yeah, gotcha. Your kids have had such a wild upbringing, um, such a different um, way to grow up that sort of core 10 years of their lives. And Pete, you and I have kids like that are roughly the same age and they've had such a different uh, way of growing up. So tell me, tell me one rad thing about each of your sons. Um, I think the thing that most school teachers get surprised at is how when, you know, most kids when they come into a classroom, they kind of case the joint and they're a bit, you know, they, they suss out what's going on. Whereas our kids sort of turn up and go, we're here. <laughs> They do, don't they? Woohoo! And they just get right into it. And some people get a bit taken aback by that, but it's made them great. They're really good at making friends. So is that because they don't feel threatened? Why don't they case the joint? Why do they just burst in and start having a good time? I don't know. It's so delightful. Yeah, maybe. I remember when they were little, they used to get really, really sad saying goodbye to people. And I... I discovered an amazing trick in that, you know, when you, where I taught them, I said to them, well, you know what, when we say goodbye to Grandma Sue, and, you know, they used to be crying and a real wreck in the car at the airport, I'd say, it's actually good because when we say goodbye to Grandma Sue, then we say hello to Uncle Joel. And then yeah, the next say, visitor. Yeah, and then when we yeah. say bye to Uncle Joel, then we get to say hello to all your friends in Australia. And then when we say goodbye to your friends in Australia, we go back to Madagascar and we see Bella mm. and say hi to all your friends and it made them really look forward to what they were going to yeah that's it that's pete the optimist (laughs) um always looking forward i guess i can still picture their little faces looking through the white fence next to the airport when you dropped me off to go home and they their big bottom lips out and they weren't crying i think they were okay um but i could see it was hard for them to say goodbye yeah yeah yeah, yeah, definitely. But it was amazing. Once they had that, had that, they stopped crying. They didn't need to bawl their eyes out. They'd be sad and miss them. But then, yeah, there wasn't like it was before. It was incredible, the change. Yeah, always something to look forward to. Mm. Yeah, cool. Now, Pete, we all know this is a bit of a change of pace now. Uh, in our family, dear listener, we uh, all know that Peter is the biggest stinker. My brother Peter has the worst B.O., just to be personal for a moment, Pete has the worst BO on this side of the equator. Actually, I reckon it's the worst BO on that side as well. Uh, and <laughs> it's, it's been a family issue. 
Um, but then, Pete, um, you made this wild discovery, this marriage-saving discovery that changed everything. So um, tell us about um, all about Lavalin. Okay. So, yeah, we heard this guy talking about uh, Lavalin. We are listening to a business talk and he was talking about how Lavalin, you know, it's a perfect example of a product that solves a problem. And it was this deodorant uh, that lasts up to 10 days for this guy. And so you put it on once and off you go. So on the packet, it says it lasts up to seven days. This guy, he lasted, uh, I think he went 10 days. But uh, yeah, so I ordered it and, you know, I put it on and I was like, so, so the way it works is it's a paste. It's like a cream and you put it on at nighttime after a shower when your body temperature is lower and you're sweating less. And then you put it on, you go to bed. And what it does is it targets the bacteria that makes you smell. And so the non-smelling bacteria populates so they take over the dominate under your armpits so you actually have a hundred species of bacteria that live under your arms and they're more than the population of the planet <laughs> so, but so, see peter that uh, <laughs> peter mr armpit expert the nor a normal person would find this deodorant and go this stuff is an absolute winner and just use it and get on with their lives but you went a step further and became the national distributor for this product, which is manufactured overseas. And now you've dived into this whole e-commerce world, which you knew nothing about because you found this brilliant product and you wanted everyone to have the same solutions. Exactly. exactly. It's a bit, bit optimistic on your part, I think on your skill level, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I was just blown away. You know, I put it on the, that next day, I call Cara the, the sniffer dog. <laughs> smell of something with you a mile away and she's like not nothing so i put on my favorite st vinnie's shirt you know that disco shirt that <laughs> two hours later you stink so bad you know you can wipe out a whole village and there's <laughs> absolutely nothing and i go on to last another four days so i rang up i found on the box i found the company and, and so i rang them up and i said what's going on how come this stuff isn't in australia uh, the distributor that you know that hadn't been doing anything for ten years. I said, "Well, could we have a go at it?" So anyway, a year later, boom, we start importing Lavalin and trying to flog it to Australians. <laughs> so who built your website, Pete? Is she good? Ah, oh, that was you, Luce. You, <laughs> you built our website. Oh, I know. <laughs> cracker. Yeah, and uh, again, Pete. I've been so impressed. And again, there were naysayers in the family who were like, oh, Peter, get a real job. It's a stupid selling this hippie deodorant from your living room. Um, trying to sort of talk you out of um, being an entrepreneur, being an e-commerce entrepreneur, because it's a, it's a tough road and you just ignored everyone and you stayed on it. And now I remember saying to one of my kids, go away, let me talk to Uncle Pete. He's teaching me some stuff about Facebook advertising. And Harlow, my middle child, looked at me and went, oh, how the tables have turned. <laughs> because I'd taught you some stuff. And now, honestly, Pete, you know so much more about e-commerce than I ever did. Uh, and, and you've done these amazing courses and you take one look at my ads and tell me what to tweak. So for the listener, give us your top three, just three, your top three things that you've learned about Facebook advertising that has actually translated to money in the bank? 
Yeah, so uh, I'd say the first thing is I'd sign up to that course. It's, it's pricey, but it's worth every cent. It's called, Okay, I'll, what's that called? It's called Mint Crow, so M-I-N-T-C-R-O. Just type right. that in, you'll find it, dot, I think it's dot .com or whatever, but Mint Crow, you'll find it. I'll put and a link on this, this podcast as well. I'll put a link there. Okay, yeah, good. And, um, yeah, let them know that Lucy sent you there. And um, But basically... From that course, I learned to rapidly test my copy and the the layout of, of a landing page mm-hmm. and to do that like the big dogs. So that's like Netflix and Amazon um, and, and how they rapidly test and are able to strategically see what works and what doesn't work, but do it cheaply and really, really quick. So that's a landing page, though. What about your what about your Facebook ads? Um, your landing page is the first page of a website that a potential buyer lands on, and then you've got to give them what they want to see to push the right buttons to buy. But we've got to get them there first. So, what's what's a juicy thing that you've learned about those actual ads? Yeah. So I mean, obviously, it's it's pretty much the same because. One, it's one thing to get someone to a, 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 a landing page. You know, most landing pages only convert at 1%. By doing this course, I have a 35% conversion rate. Shut up. Yeah, people who come to our website and wow. to our landing page. Um, so That's amazing. It, it's the same thing. So basically the copy that you, you use Facebook to test your copy and, and you're, you're able to quickly work out what's going to work and what's going to get people to your landing page from your ad. Okay, I see. And then from your landing page, you're going to get them to purchase. And what's been one of the best pieces of copy for Laval and your deodorant product? Oh, Lucy, your copy just all, I mean, that's where you're the bomb. When it comes to <laughs> copy, the stinky Australians, you're all over it. <laughs> and, and being able to test your copy was like, yep, totally. It's a gold coin. That's a gold coin. You learn about gold coins and right. basically anything that comes in at under 50 cents a click, you know that's a gold coin. Right. That's and that's a GC piece of copy that's working. Yeah, exactly. And your copy all just came in really, really well. And is yeah. that because I, it was funny, it was targeted to smell, like what 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 kind of themes were working to get people to buy deodorant online? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the big thing you always said, you know, it's deodorant, it's boring. You don't want to be like everybody else, mainstream. Let's make it fun. Let's make it raw. Let's make it what it really is like. Um, Yeah, I call that saddling up the elephant in the room because if there's something people don't want to talk about, for example, they smell bad, then that's exactly what you need to talk about. Hey, you stink. I think one of the very first things we wrote was, hey, girl, your 24-hour protection expired three hours ago. Yep, that's the one. That one did really well. Yep, and then the cool just... thing is this product lasts yonks. I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks you have with it is convincing people that it's a waterproof deodorant, but that you can keep having showers, going for swims, and it keeps working. So I use it. I think it lasts me about five days, five mm-hmm. or six days it lasts. I think that's the biggest thing is convincing people that it's true and so we did that we just write true story (laughs) (laughs) two words 
True story. Last seven days, true story. Seems to work. Yeah. And then I'd say the last thing that really pushed us in the got things moving again was um, we we sell a sample of Lavalin for four dollars, and so and so that acts like a tripwire. So that's now they call that a tripwire. Some people have um, a cheap free cheat sheet or yeah, download PDF or you know things like that. Um, and so that was our tripwire, you know, it's a no brainer, four bucks. What's that? Yep. I'll test it. Yeah. Okay. So you're more likely to throw four bucks rather than 34 to test a full size product Exactly. in case it smells weird or you just don't like using a paste or whatever. Yeah. And you've, and you've sold thousands and thousands of those little samplers. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess your next, the next job is to convert a sampler to a full size product. Which that just happens by themselves. We find, so we've got 35% land on our landing page. They go to our cart. And then that was actually another trick we did was uh, with review.io, we put our reviews at the top of the cart page. Oh, yeah. And and so we had a 6% conversion rate with the samples. When we put the the reviews.io at the top, so there are the testimonies of people. It went from 6% to 22% conversion rate. Wow. Well, good stuff. That's all. um, I I gather for the Mint Crow crowd that you've learned all this stuff from, they're engineers. So they've done it from a very measure, test, um, do it again, measure, test perspective. And and it's working. Unreal. Yeah, Yeah, because most people, you know, they do, they call it spaghetti testing. They they throw an ad up and they go, it worked or it didn't work, but they don't know why. Yeah, right. Whereas this, yeah, this is measure and see results and then you can make yeah. um, educated changes from there. So you quickly, quickly get it to the way you want it to be. Yeah, I did that under your instruction. I did that with one of my book promos, one of my book ads for Get the Girls Out. And I was pretty convinced that I knew which copy worked because it made me laugh. So I thought if it makes me laugh, it'll make other people laugh and hopefully click. And so I did that testing. I just, I I think it only cost me a dollar or two dollars per ad. They looked identical, but the copy was different. And the one um, across 400 impressions, the one that got the most clicks, I got 10 click throughs, which brought the cost per click right down to, I think it was 30 cents. Um, the t- copy that people loved was, I laughed so hard, tea came out my nose. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew I loved it and, and the test proved that, yes, people loved it too. So that's very clever. So, mm. Pete, what's, um, what's the next big adventure for my optimistic brother? Yeah, so the next, I mean, we're still in the adventure with this, with this business. It's still, you know, we're still working hard on that, getting it there. Um, you know, this crazy season we're in at the moment, just trying to get through that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. I've got a few ideas that Cara just, she's like, oh no, here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's unreal like that. She does let you, she lets you go a long way before she pulls the <laughs> pulls the leash back in you you walk way off into the distance before she starts reining you in that's yeah. why you're so you're so perfect for each other so i guess you've got boys to raise deodorant to sell and adventures to have definitely yep yeah. yeah thanks for being on my podcast pete oh thank you it was good fun <laughs>
This podcast was brought to you by the best deodorant in the universe, lavalin.com.au. This podcast was handmade by Lucy Bloom. For more info about books and other things, including links to details about my podcast guests, please go to thelucybloom.com forward slash podcast.